So open your Bibles this morning to Mark uh, to uh, Mark ten forty six through eleven eleven. That is where we we will behold and consider the wonders of God and His His Word this morning. Mark ten forty six through eleven eleven. <clears throat> so last week we noted that this time of year often carries with it a strong sense of, of home, right? Well, for as much warmth as this time of year can bring, it can also bring into focus our pain and our hurt. Wounds that haven't quite fully healed yet or can, can reopen or are exposed or felt more sharply this time of year, whether it's Wounds in relationships, sickness in body, damage done from our own sin, damage done from the sins of others, mental anguish, death. Yet we know that this time of year also holds with it the promise of healing. This this is illustrated in our passage today. Now, we've seen Jesus heal many times in Mark, but here in our passage is the last healing miracle that Jesus performs before he enters into Jerusalem. In fact, it's the last healing miracle that we find in Mark. And Mark is going to tie this, once again, to Jesus' identity as the long-awaited Messiah, the King of who has come to bring God's salvation. He's going to tie it to what, who he is and what he has come to do. And so, while we often think of uh, these passages, particularly the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus mounted on a donkey, we associate that with Easter, and we rightly should because we're entering the last week of Jesus' life here in Mark. We can also see in this passage why it is Jesus came the first time. And it also builds our anticipation for and heightens our awareness for what awaits us at his return. And so that is what Advent is all about, remembering why he came and looking to his return. And so we'll examine this passage through the lens of Advent and the lens of our three Advent questions we've been asking. Who is Jesus? Why did Jesus come the first time? And what awaits us at Jesus's return? Let's consider some context. I think it'll be helpful just for a little bit broader than normal overview. I want to highlight quickly four things. First, recall that the Gospel of Mark begins this way, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So from the beginning of the book, Mark has made us known who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He's the promised King. We know this as the reader. But second, recall that throughout Mark, there's been this messianic secret. Every time someone identifies Jesus as the Messiah, or, or particularly when demons identify who he is, he silences them. He says, don't say anything, even to, to those whom he heals. So Jesus is, is keeping his messianic identity under wraps, in a sense, because he is not wanting to reveal himself overtly through his power, but he's going to ultimately reveal himself through the mercy of the cross. And we've reached a transition point. Recall, this is the third thing to note. We entered a turning point in Mark's narrative in Mark 8, 27, when Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. 
It's the first time we saw Jesus embrace the identity in this narrative. And he tied that identity directly to his rejection, suffering, death, and resurrection to the cross. And we've seen, last week even, Jesus state more clearly, perhaps, than we've seen so far, what he has come to do when he says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Fourth and finally, recall what happened right before Peter's confession in 827, when Peter confessed right before that in Mark 822, Jesus healed the blind man at Bethsaida. And what we saw pictured in the blindness of that man was the picture uh, uh, of the, the disciples' spiritual blindness and not fully understanding who Jesus is as the Messiah and what he has come to do. And so here in our passage, we're reaching a transition once again. Jesus is about to enter into the last phase of his ministry in Mark. He's entering into Jerusalem in the last week of his life. And the way Mark closes out this section where Jesus has embraced his identity as the Christ when Peter confessed him is with the healing of another blind man. So Mark is making kind of a bookend here. There's the healing of the blind man, and the disciples don't fully get who he is. And remember what happened last week. We still see James and John not quite fully understanding who Jesus is, coming to him, asking for what they can get, right? Can we have the best seats? And so here, Mark is going to offer us a parallel once again with the healing of of blind Bartimaeus, who also confesses Jesus as the Christ. And so, look with me at our passage in Mark ten forty six through 11, 1 through 11. We've heard it read this morning, so we will consider this passage in two parts. First, we will look at blind Bartimaeus, verses ten forty six through 52, and, and what we see here is the son of David, the king of mercy the son of David, the king of mercy. Then we will look in part two at verses uh, at 11, one through 11, the son of David, the king of salvation. So we're looking at the son of David, the king of mercy, and the son of David, the king of salvation. And the main message is this, King Jesus, the son of David, came to heal and to save you through the giving of his mercy. So first look with me at Verses 46 through 52, the king of mercy, the son of David, the king of mercy. So we're going to look at this in two parts. Verses 46 through 48, we see the situation, the cry for mercy. And then in verses 49 through 52, we will see the response, mercy. Now, don't lose sight of that right there. We're going to talk about some details here, but we don't want to lose sight of the, for- of the forest for the trees, I don't want you to lose sight of this breathtaking reality that Jesus, the Son of God, the King of the universe, who is purposefully walking ahead of his disciples, ascending the hill of God into Jerusalem, going to the cross, on the way, here's a blind beggar call out for mercy. And the King of the universe, on the most important task, the very purpose for which he is here, on the way to that, hears it, and stops and gives 
mercy. Let's not lose sight of that right there. Now again, just remember here that James and John in the previous passage and the other disciples are still exhibiting a type of blindness here, seeking out Jesus's Uh, seeking out Jesus for what they can get, bringing to the table selfishly their ambitions regarding what they can gain from Jesus when they see him as this Messiah. So Mark is going to actually parallel what we see here with that scene. And and again, he's ending this entire section from 822 on to here in the same way he began it. The healing of a blind man confessing who Christ is. So, look with me now, verse 46 through 48. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Mark sets the scene here. Jesus and the disciples, a great crowd, are passing through Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus is on the way to the cross. And on the main thoroughfare sits Bartimaeus, whose name translates as the son of Timaeus. Mark notes that. Now, it's interesting that Mark identifies this man. He's the only author who does, and we don't typically get the names in Mark of people who Jesus is healing, but perhaps it points to the fact that Bartimaeus is known by whoever Mark is writing to or the early church. It's as if Mark is is telling this story and saying, oh, uh, this is about Bartimaeus. You should go go ask him about this. And, And this is very possible because what do we see Bartimaeus do at the end of this, uh, of receiving his sight. He follows Jesus on the way, right? But what we want to draw our attention to here are three realities this passage reveals. First, Bartimaeus's condition, our condition. Second, Bartimaeus's faith, which shows us a picture of saving faith. And third, the object of Bartimaeus's faith. So first, consider Bartimaeus' condition. He's a blind beggar. He's a blind beggar. He's sitting in a good spot because this is a roadway that's going to get a lot of traffic. And what that is telling us is, is that he is sitting there and will continue to sit there in perpetuity, perpetually, depending upon the charity of others. That's what he's doing. He's, he's sitting and making his livelihood by depending upon the charity of others. He must beg. And so, if this is a parallel to James and John, uh, just be aware that James and John are going to be the negative example here. And you've probably figured that out on your own. But while Bartimaeus is a picture of, of a faith that Jesus, and Jesus will make that clear in verse 52. So let's see what we can discern here. So a few differences stick out on the surface. James and John came to Jesus seeing visions of their own greatness and glory, right? The picture of selfish pride. We want to sit at your right and your left hand. Do this for us. Do whatever we ask you to do for us. Bartimaeus, on the other hand, is sitting blind and begging. He sees nothing. He has no agenda. He can only hope 
that someone passing by would show generosity and mercy. That's his only agenda. It's a picture of humility. Now, if we put our theological lenses on, it's not hard for us to see that this is who James and John actually are. Ironically, though, they're blind to this reality. Their their sin blinds them to the truth that they are, in fact, spiritually, sinfully blind beggars in need of God's charity and mercy. James and John, in their spiritual blindness, go to Jesus seeking their personal glory. This would be the equivalent of Bartimaeus trying to start a sightseeing tour of Jericho. This is the kind of reality and parallel we're looking at here. We also could see a parallel to the rich man who came to Jesus blinded by his own merits, blinded by his own wealth and love for material things. But we also see ourselves here. Before Christ, all of us were like the, the Laodiceans in, Ro- in Revelation 3, aren't we? And this is what Jesus announced to the Laodiceans through the pen of John, he said this, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. We are blind beggars in need of God's mercy. Bartimaeus's condition is the condition of all of sinful mankind. But what we see is that Bartimaeus actually saw more clearly than the disciples did. Consider the second reality the scene reveals, Bartimaeus's faith. First, Bartimaeus hears of Jesus. So as the great crowd is growing by, Bartimaeus somehow learns that it's, it's Jesus over all the ruckus, and when he hears that it is Jesus, this moves him to act. And this reminds us of how Faith comes, doesn't it? Faith comes by, Romans ten seventeen. faith comes by hearing. So Bartimaeus hears and he acts, and what does he do? Well, first consider what he doesn't do. He doesn't get up and try to blindly make his way to Jesus on his own. Rather, he cries out, and he cries out for mercy. So what does this tell us about faith? Well, it tells us that the cry of faith is marked by the cry for mercy. Why? Well, unlike James and John, Bartimaeus is aware of his condition. He may be blind, but he sees clearly his own blindness. And he may be blind, but he sees clearly his own destitute state. We know this because what does Bartimaeus not ask for? Well, he could have asked immediately for healing, He could have asked for help out of his own poverty. He could have just simply asked Jesus to stop. Not that asking any of those things necessarily would have been wrong. In fact, in some indirect way, Bartimaeus ended up receiving these things, right? But what's the difference between asking for mercy as opposed to asking for these specific things? Well, for one, it takes all the ambiguity out of it, doesn't it? Asking for any of those things could mean stop because I I deserve it. You need to stop. Heal my eyes because I deserve my eyes to be healed. Help me out of my poverty because, because I deserve it. I have something to bring to the table. But here in his request, Bartimaeus reveals something about himself. 
He reveals that he knows he doesn't deserve or has done anything to somehow earn what he's asking for. He knows that what he needs is nothing he can merit. What he needs is an act of mercy on him from the outside. That's the only thing he can really ask for is mercy. All other requests are bound up in that cry. Notice also how Mark describes Bartimaeus' request. He began to cry out. He cried out. Son of David, have mercy on me. So that's an an important description, his action, his crying out. We'll come back to it, so hold on to that. But for now, just notice that his his request was a cry, and, and, and so the cry of faith, again, we see is the cry for mercy, and it's a cry that says, there's nothing in me that deserves what I'm requesting. But Jesus, if you so desire, if you're willing, I know that you can give me what I need, the cry of faith, this cry for mercy. What else do we learn about faith here? Well, his, he cried out because he had to be heard over the crowd, right? Uh, practically, he had to be heard. And even when others tried to muffle his crying out, Mark tells us he cried out all the more. Now, Mark, we've seen this before. Mark has shown us several times throughout Uh, uh, his gospel, that faith overcomes obstacles. We've seen a leper break social protocol and run to Jesus, fall right at his feet and ask for cleansing. We've seen uh, some uh, group of people bringing their friend on a stretcher and when they couldn't get to Jesus from because of the crowd, they dig through the roof and lower him down and, and Jesus notes their faith. We've seen a woman with an issue of blood saying, if I can just touch his His garments I will be healed and fights her way, crawling through the crowd and touches Jesus. And what does Jesus attribute her healing to? Her faith. And here we see a blind beggar being suppressed in silence by the crowd only to cry out all the more for mercy. Faith overcomes obstacles and resistance. Faith is not a flash in the pan. Faith is something that endures and it persists. This is inspiring and admirable. I want the faith of this man. But if our observation of faith stops simply at the one who exercised it, then we're going to miss something huge. What is it that made his faith endure? We have to follow the eyes of his heart and see who it was he had fixed his gaze on, the object of his faith. Jesus, and this is where Bartimaeus' faith teaches us something more. First, notice how Mark sets the scene up. If faith comes through hearing, what did Bartimaeus hear? He heard it was Jesus of Nazareth. Well, why would Mark highlight Jesus being from Nazareth here? Well, I think uh, it, it's, it's to point to, once again, Jesus' human nature. Mark shows so much of Jesus' divine nature. He's the Son of God. This is who the Messiah is. Well, the last time we saw Mark refer to Jesus as, as from Nazareth, the man from Nazareth, was in Mark one twenty four at the very beginning. In fact, it was his very first miracle when he cast out a demon, and the demon said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. There, Mark told us, he was Jesus from Nazareth, the man from Nazareth. And he tied that directly to his messianic identity. 
Jesus silenced him and cast him out. And here Jesus, in Jesus' very last miracle, we see once again Jesus identified as the man from Nazareth. And Bartimaeus will identify him by his messianic identity, the son of David. The Christ who comes from David's line. This is the only time in Mark that someone refers to Jesus by this title. It's essentially the equivalent of Peter confessing Jesus as the Christ. The object of Bartimaeus' faith is Jesus, whom he believes to be the promised son of David, the king who would bring God's salvation, the Messiah. The king of Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Uh, of the, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. You do not selfishly presume upon someone with this level of authority. Looking at James and John, you bow down before him and cry out for mercy. And so Bartimaeus does. This is the very king who would be God's holy and chosen servant, whom Isaiah also says would be given as a covenant for his people in Isaiah 42, a light for the nations. And what will he do? He will open the eyes of the blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and and from prison, those who sit in darkness. Bartimaeus may be blind and sitting in his own darkness, but he sees Jesus for who he truly is. The promised David, the light of the nations, the promised son of David, the king who heals and saves. And true to who he is, a beggar, Bartimaeus cries out for mercy. And this time, Jesus does not silence his messianic identity being revealed. We've truly reached a turning point. We are getting closer and closer to the cross. And so here, in some, we see Bartimaeus' cry for mercy is the cry of faith. It recognizes one's own blind neediness, that condition, and it recognizes the undeserving need for mercy to act, for someone to act on the outside, and it cries out for it, and it fixes that cry. It, it points that cry to Jesus, the son of David, the rightful king. And Jesus is a king who gives just that mercy. Look at Jesus' response to Bartimaeus in verses 49 through 52. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. So the cry for mercy rings out to the son of David. And what does he do? He stops. And we noted Jesus is on the way to the cross, the very purpose for which he came, and he stops. Now consider, Jesus could have known about Bartimaeus. Jesus could have gone to him in private and healed him as he did. He could have gone directly to Bartimaeus and healed him just like he did uh, the, the blind man at Bethsaida, take him aside privately. However, we've also seen Jesus several times call people to higher faith. We think of Jairus 
when his daughter had died. We think of the woman with the issue of blood when Jesus asked her to identify herself. So I wonder what what you think of Jesus' reaction here. Have you ever been, most of us probably have at some point, going somewhere really important, urgent, trying to get out the door, got to get there, perhaps leaving home and or leaving work, and all of a sudden, as you've got everything situated, ready to go, headed to where you need to go, it's not as important as the cross, right, but headed to where you need to go, and all of a sudden you hear, hey, hold on just a minute, and you're like, okay, begrudgingly turn around and go back, right? I like to think here that Jesus was not passing Bartimaeus by with the intent of passing him up. We've seen him pass by before, and it's always with the intent of raising faith. When he walked by the disciples on the water, we saw there it was to raise their faith. He wasn't passing Bartimaeus by. He was walking by him to elicit and awaken faith. I think Jesus was prepared to stop, anticipating to stop at the cry of faith and mercy. He stops. I think his reaction is, I was waiting for that cry for mercy. I was hoping for that cry for mercy. That's why I'm walking by. And he calls. Cry out for mercy. You might feel like Jesus is simply passing you by as you sit in darkness. But he is passing by so that you will cry out for mercy. He's not passing you by. He's ever eager to hear your cry. And he will stop and he will call. And as we will see, he will heal It's amazing how he speaks here, and it's amazing how the voice of the king suddenly changes the entire scene, right? Look at the very forces that were against the man trying to suppress his cry out. Now, all of a sudden, what are they saying? They're saying, saying, take heart, get up, he's calling. They're working for the man. The only thing that changed that was the king's voice speaking. Have you ever wondered what the gospel says to you in your worst, most downcast moments? Have you ever thought, what would Jesus say to me at this moment? Well, here, in these words, the gospel promises. The gospel says to you, O blind beggar, take heart. Courage. It's okay. It will be all right. Get up on your feet. Your king is calling you. It says, don't be afraid. Get on your feet, not because of who you are but because of who is calling out to you, your king. We can't help but notice some eagerness here, can we? Bartimaeus throws aside the cloak, springs to his feet and comes to Jesus, certainly points to hope in his faith. I wonder, again, how we think of this reaction. It it reveals to us uh, that the key to his His getting up was actually the invitation of the king. Again, we should look at the faith of others and admired and be inspired, but don't stop there. 
Bartimaeus is fascinated by something. Something has captured his heart. Follow the eyes of his heart and see the object of his faith. This is why he casts aside the cloak and springs to his feet. You say, well, I would come to Jesus like that too if he would call me. Well, he has called you. This entire event happened in history, was written down for our instruction to see that this is what Jesus in the gospel is doing in this age of salvation. He is passing by you and me so that we would cry out to him for mercy. That's what's happening here. Be Bartimaeus. And so Bartimaeus has already given us a picture of his faith. This is what faith looks like. This is the response to, what, to Jesus. and what, to, This is what a response to Jesus in the kingdom should be. Recognizing you have nothing. Crying out for mercy. And James and John are the photo negative of this. They come to Jesus in the previous narrative. Seeking their own glory due to their own greatness. Blind to their need. Is this a fair comparison with James and John, do you think? Or are we being too hard on them? Mark and tend this. Well, I think as we'll see in the rest of Jesus' response, it is a warranted comparison. In verses 51 through 52, Jesus said to him, Jesus said to blind Bartimaeus, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So what does Jesus ask Bartimaeus? He asks, what do you want me to do for you? Does that question sound familiar? It's the exact same question that Jesus asked James and John when they said, we want you to do whatever we want you to do for us. Jesus responded to them, what do you want me to do for you? In fact, these are the only two instances in Mark that Jesus asks anyone this question. James and John, blind Bartimaeus. James and John did not receive their request for the best seats in the kingdom. But here, Bartimaeus receives his sight without word or touch. He simply asks and it is done. And what does Jesus identify as the reason your faith has made you well? The recognition for mercy and faith that Jesus would give it. Bartimaeus doesn't come to Jesus thinking he deserves the best seat. He comes to Jesus simply wanting to be let in the door. (laughs) This is what an insider of the kingdom looks like. This is the cry of faith. This is the motto of the redeemed. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus attributes it again, his healing to faith and Jesus describes this uh, healing as, or or we see Mark describe it as, uh, uh, or Jesus says, uh, your faith has made you well. And and we've seen this word before too. It's, It's a word that describes full healing. It describes physical healing. It can be used for physical healing. It can also be used for salvation. It's it's the restoration that the woman with the issue of blood experienced. It's the saving your life by losing it that Mark Describes. It's, it's a word that means healing and salvation, so we want to think of it together. And what does Bartimaeus do after his first act of being healed and saved? What does he do? An act of disobedience? Not really. 
Jesus commands him, go your way. Why would Jesus say it that way? It's another opportunity Jesus is giving to Bartimaeus to prove his faith. Typically, Mark describes amazement and awe after healing, and that's what we see. But this is, uh, and that's as far as it goes, but here, he simply notes that Bartimaeus followed Jesus on the way. So Bartimaeus does go his way, but his way is to follow Jesus. Christ's way has become his way. His way has become Christ's way. He was not seeking just what he could get from Christ, the gift. He was seeking the king himself. And it became his way. Seeking the son of David. And where does that way lead? Well, just as Bartimaeus' entire story makes clear, King Jesus, the son of David, has come to give mercy, and that mercy leads to salvation. For Jesus, the king of mercy, is the king of salvation. Look quickly with me. Part 2, verses 1 through 11. The son of David, the king of salvation. Now this scene that we heard read, it's the climactic moment in Mark. If Bartimaeus' story is a road sign that points to the destination that Jesus, the son of David, is God's promised messianic king... Then here in Jesus' entrance in Jerusalem is, is the, the, the welcome sign to that truth. Everything in this narrative, from Jesus sending two disciples to retrieve a donkey's colt with specific instructions, and everything playing out exactly as he said it would, to Jesus identifying himself with the Lord here, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this, say, the Lord has need of it to the coats and the branches being laid before Jesus, just as was done for Old Testament kings of old, to the chosen song of the people. Everything here is meant to convey to us that Jesus, in this scene, intentionally makes clear with his actions and the others' faith-filled proclamations who he is, what Bartimaeus has been pointing us to. Jesus is the promised king, the Messiah, who ushers in God's kingdom of salvation. We have to have a few Old Testament passages in our mind when we read this. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Psalm 118. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Ezekiel 37. My servant David shall be king over them. We can't read this passage or hear it read to us and not see that Jesus and these events point to one thing. He's the promised son of David. And the son of David that we just saw who gave mercy is the son of David who brings Yahweh's salvation. Jesus riding in on a donkey proves his mission. He is the promised Messiah King, and he comes bringing mercy. He comes proclaiming time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Remember in Mark 1, this proclamation, we've talked about it before, this word for preach is the word that heralds use as they go before a conquering king and enter a city to proclaim to those people the terms of peace and say, take refuge in this king and he will have mercy on you. 
This is the word that is used to describe Jesus' bringing and proclaiming the gospel when we read proclamation. And here, we see that that's the very mission Jesus is on. Because he comes in on a donkey, humble, holding only mercy. He doesn't come in, like Revelation 19 shows us, with eyes like a flame of fire, riding on a white horse, many crowns and diadems on his head, robe dipped in blood, sword coming out of his mouth to strike down the nations. That's not how he's coming. Not in his first coming. He came wielding only mercy. And the song of the people declare this. They sing, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They choose a song in Psalm 118 to sing. When we read Hosanna, it comes from the Hebrew word, which means save. We could more literally translate this psalm as, O Yahweh, save, please. This is the song of salvation. Yahweh's promised salvation. And here we see that Yahweh's salvation comes through who? The one who came in the name of the Lord, the son of David. Now remember, I told you to hold on to the words cry out. When Bartimaeus cried out for mercy, that's because here Mark uses the same words to describe the people's shouting in the original language. You could read it like this, and I think you should. And those who went before and those who followed were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The cry of salvation is the cry for mercy. The cry of faith is the cry for mercy, and that is the song of salvation. It's the song of the gospel. The son of David, the king, came to proclaim healing and salvation by offering mercy. And Jesus not only announces mercy, but he gives it in the giving of his own life on the cross. Your rightful death taken by him. God gives you salvation through Mercy. This, this means that that one particular sin that always sticks out in your mind, it receives mercy. It, that, that a moment of shame for after this past week, it receives mercy. That one besetting sin that nobody else knows about, but it, it's always there, it receives mercy. You cry out for it. Cry out not because you're working up enough motivation, but because you're a blind beggar in need of it. The one who has healing in his hands is passing by. The one who was tempted by that same sin and said no. The one who took that holy perfection, that resolve, and walked all the way to the cross without stumbling. The one who died in that holy perfection, who bore the punishment that you deserved in order that when he does pass by, and you cry out for mercy, he does not stop begrudgingly. Rather, he is eager to stop. He says, I've been waiting for that cry for mercy, as we saw earlier. And he joyfully and willingly pours out mercy upon you. And the only thing he chastises us for is for our small little Dixie cups that we bring to him. Say, can I have some mercy says, I have mercy for you, but that is not a big enough cup. 
I want to pour more mercy out on you than you even know. It is my delight to pour mercy out on you. Call out for more. Call out for more. So you cry out to the king, the king of your salvation who gives mercy. And that mercy, it does. It ultimately means your salvation and your healing. Think of how this gospel applies. Consider our questions. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the son of David, the promised king. Why did Jesus come the first time? He came to proclaim and usher in God's age of salvation through giving mercy by his death on the cross. Here in our narrative, we see that salvation, that mercy exemplified in physical healing. So we pick that Phrase back up again, made well, that word that describes both physical healing and spiritual healing and salvation, true life. This is what the son of David's mercy means for you. It means your complete healing from sins and the effects of sins in general, from the fall and from personal sin, including all manner of brokenness, relationships, past wounds, mind, body, sickness, disease, death, all of it. We noted at the beginning that Christmas is a wonderful time for all the warmth it can bring. But it's also a time that reopens and exposes wounds that are not healed. A time that brings our own sinfulness into stinging focus. But the promise of Christmas is this. Jesus' mercy is for your healing. First consider your salvation your healing as it relates to your sinfulness. Have you seen particular sins rise to the surface this season? Anxieties over money, family, prideful comparison with others? I know I've seen some of that. Resentment, sinful anger, unforgiveness with different family members or your own harmful ways towards others in the past or present? What do you do with these things? You cry out and you sing. You cry out for mercy. Your king is passing by. You cry out for mercy. And then when he gives it, you sing the song of salvation to your king. And second, consider your salvation, your healing, as it relates to the effects of your sin and the effects of sin in general in the fall, brokenness in body, mind, relationships. Has this time of year brought into focus these effects? Sickness in your body that is persistent again for another year? Those in your family? Mental anguish of very real past hurts that come alive this time of year? Relational strife? Death? Just recently got word this week. One of my friends I grew up with died in his sleep, same age. It's me. What do you do with these? You cry out and you sing. You cry out for mercy. Cry out for mercy. Your king is passing by and he wants to pour out mercy on you. And then you turn and you sing the song of salvation. You say, how long will I be crying out for mercy? I've been crying out, and some of these things have not changed. How long? Well, you and I should continue to cry and sing this song 
until our king returns. What awaits us at Jesus' return? Our passage ends this way. Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. When he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus entered into the temple and left. This isn't a throwaway verse because we know what happens next. Jesus comes back and he judges and cleanses the temple. So don't stop crying out and singing. Keep on crying out and keep on singing because for those who have cried this mixed song of mercy and salvation, your king is coming back to you to bring complete healing. Full healing is coming when he returns. Our cry for mercy has an end date because though we taste of healing now in part, the struggle continues with sin and the struggle with the effects of sin. But with the return of our king, in that coming kingdom, there is a tree evergreen, always in fruit, ever in leaf. And those leaves are intended for the healing of the nations. Your complete healing. And what does that complete healing feel like? What is that finally rid of that sin, finally rid of that pain? What does that look like? What does that feel like? I think it feels like maybe Malachi 4, 2 through 3. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. We just sang that last week. The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So until then, our song of salvation mixes with the cry for mercy. And until then, while we walk from this earth into eternity, with our king, when we stumble, we cry out for mercy. And he picks us up, and we sing the song of salvation when he does. But what awaits us at the son of David's return is your complete healing. No more sin, no more pain. And what will remain, not a cry for mercy. Oh, we will remember the mercy joyfully. But what will ever be ringing from our lips is the song of salvation. Let's pray.